Hey there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. It is created by journalists and for journalists. And as a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly. Experts with so much knowledge and insight, and yet it rarely makes it past the headlines. So I'm bringing on one of those experts to answer all of the questions I've ever had about their field. Today, I'm chatting with Carlos Larrauri. He is a mental health clinician, a speaker, and advocate. He is a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and a member of the board of directors for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. He's also a Zuckerman Fellow at Harvard Center for Public Leadership. Carlos, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's my pleasure. A lot of the work that you do, Carlos, focuses on schizophrenia, something that you yourself have been diagnosed with that you speak openly about. Tell us, what is schizophrenia? That's an excellent question. I think a good place to start understanding schizophrenia is by dispelling some of the myths and misconceptions associated with it. It is not a split personality disorder, as some people uh, understand it or think it to be. It's rather a split from reality. It's categorized by kind of three buckets of symptoms, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and cognitive symptoms. The most well-known are the positive symptoms, and that doesn't mean that they're good. You could think of it as the addition of something that's not there, like hallucinations or delusions. There's also the negative symptoms. You can think of that as a subtraction of something that would be there, like the loss of motivation or loss of pleasure. And then the cognitive symptoms could be trouble focusing or paying attention. And it's really these three buckets of symptoms that compose uh, how we understand schizophrenia. You know, I'm excited for this conversation because I feel like by speaking and informing people about this, it helps to destigmatize and bring information to individuals who don't know anything about this. Um, and you also do that in your personal life as well. Can you tell us a little bit of what your personal journey with schizophrenia has been like? Sure. I think you're absolutely right, Catalina. And I think this is a great opportunity to share a narrative of living successfully with this illness, which we don't often see or hear about in popular in- industry, entertainment industry or media portrayals. But so a little bit about my story. I was always a good student. I had been a National Hispanic Scholar in high school and was off to an early acceptance program for medical school at 18, when I think the onset of mental health issues that started to really affect my academic performance were occurring. It started with kind of mood symptoms, feeling sad and uh, and anxious, and, al- and, and also cognitive symptoms, like having trouble focusing or paying attention. Um, so... I returned home after my first year of college away at Ohio State University and came back to Miami. And I think in my support network with family and that structure, I got better. But I left the college once again to complete my bachelor's degree. And unfortunately, the onset of psychosis uh, started to occur. I had tried to see a school psychologist because I felt something was off. Uh, again, identifying cognitive symptoms, trouble focusing and concentrating, and, and mood symptoms, trouble feeling anxious and depressed. But we failed to identify the severity of the situation. Ultimately, 
by my senior year of college, I was floridly psychotic. And what that means is I was hearing voices. I thought that angels were talking to me. I was religiously preoccupied. I was reading every religious text, but in an obsessive kind of way, in a way that was causing me to isolate myself from others instead of socially connect with others. I had uh, delusions that I was a messianic-like figure and was obsessed with the Messiah. I had delusions that the television was referring to me or that the TV was talking to me or that trees were whispering things to me or, or even buildings. So I was beginning to, as we mentioned earlier, split from reality. My perceptions were no longer consistent with the reality that other people experience. You know, fortunately for me, I had a family friend that had known me since middle school, and she called my mom and said, something's off with Carlos, you should talk to him. My mom spoke with me and then came to campus immediately thereafter. And we sat down with my academic advisor, uh, Dr. Clark, and my mom. And she said, you know, Carlos, you're an adult. You have the right to privacy. I don't have to share anything that happened to you on campus. And I think in a rare moment of insight or lucidity, I said, with all due respect, Professor, Dr. Clark, I have a Cuban mother. I've never had the right to privacy. You know, all kidding aside, that really was a turning point. That was a point where we could begin to have a frank and honest conversation about my mental health challenges at school. And from there, we began the long and sometimes arduous process of getting the quality care and help that I needed. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I'm also a Latina, and so I totally understand what you mean about there being no privacy. But it also sounds like having your family there as advocates has helped you in many ways overcome the illness and become the high achiever that you are, without taking away any merit that is due to you, of course. That's absolutely right, Catalina. I don't think I would be here today without the family support I've received. And, you know, this illness is a difficult illness to make sense of and uh, for family and for people going through it. There's feelings that are obviously terrifying when you get the sense that you're starting to lose your identity and your mind and you can no longer communicate with your environment or make sense of what's going on. It's a very terrifying feeling. There's also times that are absurd and kind of even funny in retrospect because you do things that are irrational or, or things that are just unexpected. and and you know, obviously you have to have a sense of humor and try to make sense of the experience by finding some of that irony and absurdity. Otherwise, you're just left with tragedy. And there's also times that felt profound. You know, for me, going through what I thought was hearing angels or thought I was a Messiah felt like a profound spiritual experience, even though everything I was going through was deteriorating. You know, I was struggling in school. I couldn't hold down jobs. I couldn't maintain relationships. So you have this kind of roller coaster ride and then you're going from these kind of manic highs if you will um i mean mania is a separate condition bipolar but sometimes there's some overlap from these these highs of thinking you have a masonic complex and then within a couple of weeks you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you go to those lows and it's it's kind of hard to make sense of it all uh but again i'm very fortunate that i had and this is what often people need which is advocates they need someone there for them when they're at their most vulnerable a mom, a family member, a friend who can advocate on their behalf. Because when I was going through the thick of it, the floor psychosis, 
I would have told you everything was fine and I didn't know that I needed help. It wasn't until my family urged me to get care, to see, you know, doctors and, and, and providers and, and ultimately get access to medication and begin taking it that I could start to see what was going on, that the fog of psychosis started to dissipate. And I started to realize, oh, you know, the television talking to me is not normal. <laughs> and, you know, um, hearing conversations that are not in the environment, that's not normal. And I could start to finally think a little bit more clearly and see things more clearly. But again, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for family who pushed for me to get the care I needed when I was my most vulnerable. I tell people just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes the same village to heal a teenager, young adult when they're having a crisis of the mind. And it can be a, a difficult and traumatic experience for families and people, but there's also capacity. If you're lucky, if you have the right resources in place and get the right supports at the right time to go through a trauma and come back from it, I think a stronger and better person. And, um, but again, that speaks less to my uh, will or strength of character and more to the, the village that I had around me. And your story is not unlike the story of others who have schizophrenia because it manifested in the early adulthood. Do we know why that happens and do we know what causes schizophrenia? Sure. We certainly have some hypothesis that schizophrenia is a you know, caused by the interaction of genetic predisposition and the environment, um, and that some of the factors that increase the risk for schizophrenia can happen as early as even pre-birth and what happens during pregnancy and the period around birth. Uh, and this also converges with the environment. Could be adverse childhood experiences, could be marijuana use, could be other forms of trauma. To increase the likelihood of someone developing it, um, it's there's probably no there's no single gene. It's rather a genetic architecture of lots of genes that increase the risk. But we do know, as you mentioned, that it typically affects people when they're teenagers or young adults between the ages of 15 to 25 for men, and let's say 20 to 30 for women, and that's because that also coincides with a particular period of brain development and susceptibility. The brain is forming a lot of neurons during neural connections during the teenage years. And some of those neural connections are pruned in natural processes by the brain, just like a tree grows and you have to prune it for it to grow healthier. The brain has its own pruning process with neurons and their connections. But some of that synaptic pruning goes awry in schizophrenia. And in our best understanding of it now is as a neurodevelopmental illness where synaptic pruning, kind of cutting down of existing neural connections, goes awry. Mm. And so this is a bit more of a sophisticated understanding than our older hypothesis, which is that it used to be just an imbalance of dopamine, that too much dopamine cause schizophrenia. There's some truth to that, but we're still, we're still understanding it. It's a very complex illness to understand because it has causes occurring genetically and it affects neurons. It affects brain circuits. It affects 
gross anatomical regions of the brain. It in intersects with the environment and social and structural factors like uh, racism and and pollution. And, and there's, a, there's a lot that goes into what increases the risk of developing or being diagnosed with schizophrenia. But what we do know is that we still have some treatments today that can really help people. That when people get early interventions particularly and get access to the critical medications and psychosocial supports they need, they have to they stand the best chance of recovering and resuming a, a, a more normal life trajectory. You just brought this up, treatment. Um, I'm wondering how do you treat this illness? That affects so many people. I mean, according to the WHO, about 21 million people worldwide. That's right. Um, some estimates are about 1% of the population, give or take, uh, has schizophrenia, which is, uh, or psychosis, which is, you know, not that rare. Treatment is a combination of medical interventions, you know, particularly medications, and also therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy and also psychosocial support services. So, you know, I think of medication as a necessary condition in most cases. That is to say, uh, medication creates the foundation for the recovery process, but it's not enough. Sometimes, most times people need more than just medication. They need, as I mentioned, therapy. They might need peer support, which means getting support from another young person living with psychosis or schizophrenia. They may need to engage in self-advocacy, advocating for their needs, mm -hmm. such as academic accommodations in school, or for others going through the same conditions. That gives people a sense of meaning and purpose, which is important to recovery in a holistic sense. They may need supportive family, education for the family or for themselves to understand the risks, um, like poor sleep or alcohol or drugs, and minimize those and understand the protective factors like good sleep, a better diet. Um, instructive activities for the mind. So to get to recovery, it's, it's, it's really a journey and it's, there's no magic pill. There's no silver bullet, but it's possible if people get the early interventions in particular and get, and get the right and access to the right services and the right treatments. Speaking of magic pills, um, Statistics show that over 50% of people with schizophrenia don't receive appropriate treatment. How does health insurance play a part in treating schizophrenia? Health insurance plays an important role. I can draw from my lived experience. For me, for example, the Affordable Care Act had expanded adult child-dependent coverage until the age of 26, which meant that I was still covered by my mom's uh, employer's insurance. And that allowed us to essentially seek out care. And one thing is getting access to care. Another thing is getting quality care. And it really took several tries, seeing maybe half a dozen to a dozen mental health professionals wow. to get ultimately the right diagnosis and get access to medications. Um, but that wouldn't have been possible with health insurance. Health insurance provides, in another way, it provides a foundation for which people can for the care they need. And it also has benefits for people's own mental well-being. It provides a peace of mind, uh, knowing that they can get care when they need it. So 
it, it certainly was important in my recovery. And we still have, I think, about roughly 10% of the population that's uninsured. Uh, and there's still a lot of good work that can be done advocating to expand insurance. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think, uh, I saw this recent statistic from the National Alliance to End Homelessness. They estimate that as many as 20% of the unhoused population could be suffering from schizophrenia or some type of similar disorder. And, you know, you just wonder how much of that is not having the access to the services and the treatment um, that could provide them that kind of stability in their lives. You're right, Catalina. A lot of it is that, you know, treatments will work in most people. Maybe a third are not responsive to current treatment. So that's still a very important population we got to think about developing better treatments for. But for most people, they will work. And even with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, most people will experience some recovery and remission given the right conditions. But for many, treatment is sporadic. Medication adherence is inconsistent for a variety of factors, um, social and structural, uh, such as lack of insurance or, or lack of parity between medical care and, and behavioral health care in terms of payment or in terms of access to providers. So it's, it's critical that people understand that when it comes to schizophrenia, you got you to gotta nip it in the bud. You got to intervene early. Just like they say, you know, with a heart attack, minutes matter. Um, well, when someone is going through a brain attack, when someone's going through a mental health crisis because of psychosis, you know, time matters. Some scientists and researchers hypothesize that being in a state of psychosis is a state of toxicity for the brain. I think it's certainly true that just like if you had a chronic illness like diabetes and you didn't take your medication and you let it flare up, you're going to develop complications from the illness that you can't necessarily go back from. That's the same for psychosis. The more you have episodes of psychosis and the longer they're untreated, especially the longer that the duration of untreated psychosis, the more difficult the prognosis becomes the more ch more challenging it is to achieve uh, an optimal recovery. So people have to understand there should be a sense of urgency and getting people access to medications, access to other treatments is, is paramount. Yeah, absolutely. You've said this um, word a few times already. You said psychosis and I wonder if there is a difference between psychosis, schizophrenia. Is it different from the paranoid schizophrenia, different from psychoaffective disorder? So many words, not sure if they're all different or how they're different. Sure. I kind of use schizophrenia and psychosis interchangeably, but to be more precise, they do matter in terms of diagnostic understanding. So psychosis can occur in other illnesses. They can occur in bipolar disorder which is characterized by highs that, you know, manic episodes and lows, depressive episodes and the fluctuating mood. Um, but people in states of people with bipolar disorder can also experience psychosis, hearing things or seeing things or paranoid delusions that people are after them. Psychosis can even occur in other conditions such as major depressive disorder or PTSD. What often differentiates, um, and then there's, you know, schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of like 
uh, in, in very rough terms, kind of a hybrid of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. You have mood symptoms, manic episodes and depressive levels, but you also have psychosis. But the balance of them is a bit different than in bipolar disorder. So it leads to a, a, a different diagnosis. But this is all kind of splitting the hair with with diagnosis. I'll mention what different schizophrenia is that you also have the negative symptoms, as I mentioned, the anhedonia, loss of pleasure, the amotivation, loss of motivation, and the cognitive symptoms. And often schizophrenia is differentiated by the degree of impairment. You have a severe functional impairment. And by functioning, we're discussing people's ability to go about their daily life. It could be activities of daily living, such as showering, cleaning, or it could be more high-ordered activities, such as balancing your checkbook or going to school or work. But, it, you know, personally, my philosophy, both as someone living with it and with as a clinician, this diagnosis are, are helpful. They help us understand what we're going through so we can make sense of it. But really, the priority should become, an er again, early intervention and intervening early. It doesn't help a patient to waste time differentiating the diagnosis while they go left without care. And as much as we, you know, as patients ourselves want to make sense of our experience, you know, often people, what still matters to them is their goals, their aspirations, their developmental milestones, going to school, going to work, dating, so forth. So I, I, Diagnosis is very important for research purposes, for insurance purposes, for clinical purposes. But at the end of the day, you know, people care usually more about their functioning and their goals and the things that matter to them, their needs and wants. So I, I try to emphasize that, that the priority is intervention and the priority is, is getting the care that's going to help you achieve what you want. You know, I wonder how should someone who believes they have a friend or a family member with schizophrenia, how do you approach that discussion? Do you bring it up to them? Do you bring it up to someone, uh, to a closer family member? How do you approach that discussion when you think that you have a loved one or a friend with schizophrenia? That's a tough question, Catalina, because it's certainly true in my story, and I certainly see it all the time as an advocate and as a clinician, you know, I get the story of a mother or father, or brother or loved one who says, you know, my my loved one is starting to act strange and struggle at work or school. And, and you know, I think it might be, you know, something might be going on, but they don't realize it. They don't see it. I think in in, in those circumstances, it's important to have those advocates there that are going to be advocating on behalf of the loved one, because it's true that this illness can rob you to some degree of your self-awareness, to some degree of your realization that something's off. This happens in other illnesses like dementia. It can happen with strokes where people can have a stroke and not necessarily think anything happened or they're fine. Sometimes it's referred in the clinical jargon as anosognosia, again, that lack of awareness or insight. So in those particular cases, it's important to have those advocates. If someone still can sense that something's off and I think it's important to broach the conversation with compassion, listening to the person. It sometimes helps to not approach it clinically, I think, but approach it from a, another lived experience, maybe talking to another peer, someone that has a shared experience, at least initially, um, at a NAMI support group, for example, or other support groups, get some education 
you know, that NAMI provides free programs, free education, free groups. Um, ultimately, you will need a clinician to confirm a diagnosis and to provide medication. And I think that becomes especially critical because in my case, at least, the medication was a game changer. It really allowed me to start seeing what was going on. Again, I was lost in the fog of psychosis. And if it wasn't for having family advocating for me and getting access to life-saving medical treatments, you know, my life would have turned out completely differently. So, you know, it, it all depends on what the, the loved one is going through. But I think certain principles are true, uh, which again is that they need an advocate on their behalf in many cases. Uh, when there's a state of florid illness and, and there's no longer capacity to reason or the illness has taken over. But if someone is not there yet, and most of the time they hopefully we can intervene before they get there, approaching the person with uh, a shared lived experience can be helpful and keeping a vigilance because some people will develop some symptoms of psychosis or attenuated symptoms and will not develop schizophrenia. It, it kind of is a passing phase and other people will, and we still can't really differentiate those people yet scientifically with tools. We're hoping to get there through the advancement of science and biomarkers, but the best we can do is, you know, train other people, whether it's friends or family or resident advisors, other non-clinicians to become aware of the warning signs of a mental health crisis. And if something is going on early, if something if they see or hear something going on, to identify early and refer the person to resources. Um, because again, early intervention becomes so critical. And often the status quo is that we wait till someone's in crisis. We wait till the interaction with the police or someone's dropped out of school. We wait till with schizophrenia, we basically, we wait till stage three or stage four of the illness. With most diseases, we don't. With hypertension or high blood pressure, we have uh, blood pressure measuring tools that can tell you if your blood pressure is high and tell you at what risk you are for having a heart attack or stroke. And we intervene early with medication that prevents that risk. And we don't wait till the kind of stage four equivalent of that disease process, which might be a heart attack or stroke. But with schizophrenia, we're still waiting until stage three or four, until someone is interacting with the police or is in crisis or talking to themselves. And so that's what we can do for now. My hope, my hope is that the science will get there with better tools, with better objective measures, with digital or biological biomarkers that allow us to intervene during stage one and prevent people from developing this illness or at least mitigate the course of it. It is confounding to me that mental health in our society is treated so different from physical health. Everyone understands that when you break a bone or you get the flu, then you are ill, you're sick, and insurance typically covers it and no one bats an eye, right? But mental health, which is arguably much more important than a broken bone or the flu, is so often absolutely neglected. That's right, Catalina. We, we could have a, talk, a conversation about mental health without discussing stigma. And it's true, when you, when you go through a mental health crisis, you, know, you don't get casserole. You don't get cards. You don't get flowers in many cases. Like if you got diagnosed with cancer or were going through, like you mentioned, a broken or fractured bone. And a lot of that stigma is due to ignorance. We still don't understand much of the brain or how it works. Some of it might be due to prejudices and, and stereotypes that have been inculcated by society of what it means to have a psychiatric disability or to have schizophrenia. Some of it can be remnants of still moralizing illness. We used to think that epilepsy was spiritual possession and things of that sort. 
but I think more and more, I'm optimistic that there is a zeitgeist, that there is a cultural shift occurring, that the next generation, the younger generation are talking about mental health more. They're talking in the open, they're talking in the open about it. More celebrities are talking about it. And people are recognizing, as you said, that we can't have health without mental health, that there is a, a you know, a right to health and there's a, a right to being mentally uh, well and accessing the care and the support that people need to, to achieve that. Yeah. I wonder what is the hardest thing about having schizophrenia? You know, the, the illness is very challenging. Some of my friends who also have it have described it as kind of like playing a video game on the hardest setting mm. or uh, which is maybe not the most apt description, but for those that like video games, maybe it registers. But I think it's the illness makes life challenging. Activities that normally one can do become more exhausting or tiresome. Um, coping with the illness in itself, the, the symptoms in, it can be exhausting and tiresome. But I, I think for for me and for people as fortunate to, to have the illness under control for the most part, I mean, mentally I feel pretty well. Uh, I think it's the stigma and it's the discrimination. It's the fact that people will, you know, uh, see the label of schizophrenia and, and make a, a connection with something that they associate with that's often negative and judge you and make decisions about you based on that. And that to me is just as terrifying as psychosis. I, I, I want as an ambitious person, as a smart person, as a hardworking person to be treated on my merit, on my values, on my ethic, on my ambition, and not be judged based on a stereotype, a prejudice, a form of discrimination. So for, for many of us, you know, the illness in and of itself is very challenging, but I think people have an immense capacity for resiliency and can learn to cope and to, can learn to overcome and can, in some cases, even come out psychologically more mature or better. But there's still this stigma that we have to face day in and day out that, and navigating that, that makes life especially challenging. Is there any last thing that you would like people to know about this mental illness? Anything you'd like to mention? Well, I always like to leave on a hopeful and optimistic note. And I want to tell people out there that you're not alone. No matter what you're going through, whether you're starting to hear things or think people are following you or you're just feeling sad or anxious, you know, you're not alone in the struggle. You know, mental health and the adversities that it causes for us is, is part of the human condition. And, and if you recognize it and you see it for what it is, you know, get help. Reach out to a friend. Reach out to a family. Reach out to a coworker. Reach out to NAMI. Again, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is in many communities and is a great resource for education, free support groups and programming. And and recognize that in many cases, it does get better. Especially the beginning can be the especially challenging part with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. But I think there is hope and I do think it can get better and it will. And I think you're a perfect example of that. Thank you so much for that, Carlos. Thank you, Catalina. My pleasure. 
You can learn a lot more about Carlos by visiting his website, carloslarrauri.com, and you can find hundreds of other exceptional experts at rolyapp.com. I'm Catalina Villegas, and you can always connect with me on social media at Catalina Official, O-F-F-C-L, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Until next time.